Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, September 17th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part 12 of our ongoing series, The Protocols of Satan. I don't know how many parts it's going to take of this series to get through the protocols. We won't even get into them tonight, actually. We're going to continue um, an exposition of Jewish media control in the early 20th century, where we picked off, where we picked up from, where we left off from last week. In the last segment of our presentation of the Protocols of Satan, we discussed only a small portion of the first protocol, which we will cite again here from the translation, this time by Victor Marsden, where it says, in any state in which there is a bad organization of authority, an impersonality of laws, and of the rulers who have lost their personality amid the flood of rights, ever multiplying out of liberalism. I find a new right to attack by the right of the strong, and to scatter to the winds all existing forces of order and regulation, to reconstruct all institutions, and to become the sovereign lord of those who have left to us the rights of their power by laying them down voluntarily in their liberalism. Now the Marsden translation words... The phraseology is much stronger than that in the Brassall translation in that passage. It is probably not an accident that a movement towards parliamentary systems of government in Europe developed earliest where the Jews had the most influence, in parts of Spain as early as the 12th century, in the Netherlands during the so-called Dutch Revolt of the 16th century neither of which early attempts had endured, and then in England, where it took root and has endured. The English Parliament, until the time of Cromwell, was still basically a feudal institution, which had dated from the time of William of Normandy. After the travails of the 17th century revolutions, the modern parliamentary system was instituted in England in 1707, and then in Sweden in 1721. These systems limited the power of the king and shifted power to supposed representatives of the population, or perhaps in earlier stages of landholders within the population. After the French Revolution, that nation underwent several reconstructions of government until a parliament was formed in 1830. French government has had a dozen different constitutions and charters, many of them lasting only a year, with the latest one being instituted as recently as 1958. France had new constitutions in 1791, 
1793, 1795, 1799, 1802, 1804, a charter in 1815, addition, I'm sorry, in 1814, additions in 1815, another charter in 1830, another constitution in 1848, 1852, etc., etc. The German Bundestag was formed in 1815 and Germany only being a little more stable than France. The first organization of such a government lasted until 1848. The Federation was renewed in 1850 and lasted until 1866. A second Reich or German Empire was formed in 1871 and the Jews of England just had to destroy that and destroyed it in 1918. The Russian Tsars began to cede a portion of their authority to the people in the 1860s with the introduction of the Zemstvo. And within 50 years, a parliamentary provisional government was formed, which was the immediate stepping stone to Bolshevism. This this is exactly what the protocols mean by a bad organization of authority. When France has 15 constitutions in 50 years or whatever, that's a bad organization of authority. And the rulers who have lost their personality amid the flood of rights ever multiplying out of liberalism. This is exactly what the Jews of the Protocols mean when they write these things. All these governments, when nations can't seem to organize governments under the rule of the people, without the rule of an autocrat, of a monarch. Under the concept of liberalism, once a distinct group can be identified within a population, it may then be imagined to have peculiar rights and the group can agitate or perhaps others can agitate on behalf of the group until that group obtains political advantages on account of those perceived rights. The Jews who wrote the protocols express this in his doctrines and they use their control of the media to identify or even to create such groups campaigning for their rights through the media until a portion of their political power, a portion of the political power of the government is relegated to the particular group through legislation. Where there is no group, through the media they can create their own such groups, or through their power of money, when they want to create divisions in any state they can even purchase the creation of such groups. Then the Jewish media, in collusion with the agitators, gives the selected group publicity far beyond the attention which it merits. This is how the abolitionist movement began. This is how the suffrage movement was popularized. Then the prohibitionists. Then the civil rights and the hippie and anti-war movements of the 50s and 60s, all the way to the deviant, sodomite, and minority interest movements of today. And the protocols, the Jews are telling us precisely that this is what they're going to do, and this is what they've done. 
All of these so-called social revolutions had Jewish financial backing, had Jewish agitators, Jewish quote-unquote leaders, and Jewish media coverage to create an alternate perception of reality and public opinion. They created the public opinion through which the few could overcome the many and move the nation in the direction where the Jews wanted to go. Consistently dividing people, dividing groups within a nation, balkanizing them so that they can more easily control all groups. The so-called Black Rights Matter movement is a perfect example of how this works. There is documentation which leaves no doubt that the leading Black Rights Matters characters are bankrolled by the Jew, George Soros. While the Jewish media promotes the movement and gives its leading agitators political legitimacy and even glowing approbation, even though in reality they are nothing more than thugs and criminals, the Jewish media takes dead criminals and promotes them as heroes and saints when the bare facts of the cases they champion are completely ignored, all to advance the political interests of those same thugs and criminals. But none of this is new. This is how the Jews have subverted Christian society for well over 200 years now. The methods are continually updated, but they always have the same structure. There are other complications, especially in the subversion of the Christian religion, which have only helped to accommodate this basic pattern. This is why when we presented this portion of the protocols in our previous segment of this series, in part 11, we took a long digression to explain that the newspapers especially, since our primary topic is from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but now also the far more ubiquitous electronic media, actually create public opinion rather than observing and reporting public opinion. We also began to demonstrate that Jewish interests controlled the leading newspapers of the major countries of the West by the time that the protocols were published. And to us, this is very important to understand. So we're going to continue in that same path tonight. When the rulers of Christendom ceded their powers to the masses of the people in the name of liberalism, the Jews who controlled finance and the media already understood that they themselves could step into the positions which the rulers had vacated, and they did, and they tell us here in the protocols. So we documented and discussed the Jewish control of both the German and American newspapers, the major influential ones at least, since the late 19th century. Now, 19th century, not 1970s. Now we are going to continue that digression and illustrate the Jewish control of the English newspapers from that same period. And at the end of this evening, we'll, we'll demonstrate the Jewish manipulation of at least one 
popular and otherwise scholarly encyclopedia. So here we are going to present a booklet, first published in 1937 and updated and republished in 1939 entitled Jewish Press Control, the London Newspapers. To some of our longtime listeners, this may be tedious, but we feel that in the end it will all be worthwhile, especially to newcomers to the great conspiracy who listen to these programs. So please suffer it along with us. I will publish a facsimile of this booklet at Christogenia as I publish this podcast. Jewish Press Control, the London Newspapers. In democratic countries, the transmission of news to the public is controlled by the Jewish money power to such an extent that hardly anything unfavorable to the Jewish interest is allowed to appear in a journal. And we will substantiate this very thing from the mouth of the Jews later on. The news agencies themselves are controlled by the newspapers themselves in cooperation with the exception of the central news agency the control of which is secret, a news agency in Britain, the majority of the shares being held by banks' nominees. Nowadays, at least, the power of the big advertiser is available to crush, by boycott, any attempt on the part of an otherwise incompletely controlled newspaper to present its readers with some of the undiluted truth. In this article, however, we deal only with the direct Jewish influence in our newspapers, which are quoted abroad in foreign Jew-controlled papers as reflecting British public opinion. The past history is at least as important as the present, as it is the past propaganda which has produced the present confusion of thought, and that is true. It's important for us to understand what's happened in the Christian societies for the last several hundred years so that we can understand the circumstances which have created the mindset and, and the opinions and beliefs of people down through time. In a future segment of this series on the protocols, we plan to present Henry Ford's assessment of the Jewish control of non-Jewish newspapers through the advertising agencies, as he had described it in The International Jew in the 1920s. And for now, that, as our, the author of our booklet just stated, that is beyond our reach this evening. And our booklet continues... The way in which this opinion can be deliberately falsified may be appropriately described in the words of the Reverend Wright, who can hardly be described as an anti-Semite, since he wrote in the monthly account of the Proceedings of the London Society for Promoting Christianity Amongst the Jews in April of 1946, 90 years before this booklet was published, the daily political press of Europe is very much under the dominion of the Jews. This is a Christian minister in England writing this in 1846. 
If any literary opponent ventures to endeavor to arrest the progress of Judaism to political power, he finds himself exposed to attack after attack in most of the leading journals of Europe. I never pass by a crowded reading room, but what I think I see standing behind the scenes. A Jew causing new ideas to rise and stir and develop themselves in the unsuspecting mind of the Gentile. Mark that word, unsuspecting, for the crypto-Jew with the British name is usually the kind we meet with in journalism, and we will certainly see that at the end of this, at the end of this program tonight. We will see an explicit example of that. On the 26th of July, 1879, the graphic, which had then been 10 years in existence, stated, the press of the continent is to a large extent in the hands of the Jews. The graphic should know. As an instance of what can be accomplished by means of press control, we may instance the fact that Litvinov, a criminal Jew who represented the Jewish Soviet of Russia, whose officials murdered the Tsar and his family, and who are responsible for about 20 million deaths of Russian Gentiles, their term, can walk in the funeral procession of our beloved late King George V, because public opinion has been guided by the Jew-controlled press to regard the Bolshevik murders with complacency. In the same way, Britain is being gradually prepared by constant misrepresentation of facts to look upon the great spiritual leader of Germany, Herr Hitler, as a barbarian and a madman, in the hope that this country may be used once again to fight its own kith and kin in Germany, so that racial fascism shall be destroyed. And it should be said up front that this booklet is, of course, published by a fascist organization in London, when we could still have such organizations in London. This was first printed in 1937. We have at the Mein Kampf Project a page from Life magazine, which I will link here, dated for October 1938, showing that the Jewish control press was also explicitly preparing Americans for war with Germany, Italy, and Japan long before any shots were fired. And such publications should prove beyond doubt that it was the Jewish-controlled press who wanted war with those nations because they wanted to destroy those nations. And they knew that they would succeed in manipulating the governments of West into their war and the people into agreement. They knew it. And our author continues... Particularly in the Spanish Civil War, talking about the media conditioning of the British people, the British people were completely misled by the tone of the quote-unquote news, dished out to them by the daily and weekly press. 
Almost everything favorable to Franco was suppressed. While the bloodthirsty Jewish red leaders might never have existed at all for anything that was reported of them, practically the whole British press took part in a conspiracy to disguise Jewish Bolshevism as democracy. In the News Chronicle on the 14th of September 1937, Hitler's statement that Russia was a victim of a handful of Jews was presented to its readers with the word Jews illegible, although the whole rest of the page was beautifully printed. In a letter to the leader of the Imperial Fascist League, dated the 26th of June 1937, General Franco said that he was aware of the propaganda that is made through the Jewish press which deceives your noble country, preventing the realization of the true character of this war, which is nothing less than one for the defense of Western civilization. There was a great Jewish-American participation in the Spanish Civil War as well. And the Jewish press in America acted in the same way as the British press described here. We did a series of podcasts discussing this aspect of the Spanish Civil War, which are also kept at the Mein Kampf Project, and we will link them here. And there are podcasts and articles there in that section that show that the New York Times was manipulating the public opinion towards Franco and towards the agitating side in the Spanish Civil War in this very same manner that's described here, the Jewish Bolsheviks who sought to take over Spain. In the Jewish Chronicle of November 14, 1930, Jew control of the press is admitted in the following words. With reference to the unfriendly criticisms of Jewry by certain newspapers in this country with regard to the government polity in Palestine, it may interest your readers to remind them that in an address some years ago, Lord Beaverbrook alluded to the fact that American Jewry were so powerful that the big businesses controlled by Jews there, by withholding their advertisements, were able to combat an anti-Semitic attack on certain organs, in certain organs of the American press. And as we have said, Henry Ford explained this very phenomenon in the international Jew. And we hope to discuss it here soon returning to our pamphlet. An example of this in England is the case of the National Graphic. On the 16th of June 1932, this paper devoted two columns to the activities of the anti-Jewish worker Monsieur Coty against the Jewish financiers and gave the impression that it was not inclined to dismiss Coty's charges with ridicule. Three weeks later, the National Geographic attacked the British Broadcasting Company, I'm sorry, the National Graphic, attacked the British Broadcasting Company on account of the number of aliens, meaning Jews evidently, employed in broadcasting 
and in other capacities. And remarked that the policy of Sir John Reith might well be the object of a searching enquiry. In other words, why the BBC is employing so many Jews. The next issue, dated July 14th, contained only eight pages of advertisements. On July 15th, the National Graphic ceased publication. The advertising agencies put them right out of business. Chambers Encyclopedia for 1901, Volume 6, says, and he quotes, Another extraordinary and well-authenticated fact is that the European press, no less than European finance, is under Jewish control, but goes on to say that the effect of this has been greatly exaggerated. Now, we have located this exact volume of Chambers' Encyclopedia, which contains this citation, which is on page 332 of the stated edition, under the article titled Jews, the entry for Jews in the encyclopedia. But the statement is made in a context which is so flattering to Jews that the encyclopedia could not have been criticized for it. And, in fact, the statement was written for the encyclopedia by Jews. And we will demonstrate that at the end of this at, at, at the conclusion of this program. Speaking of the supposed accomplishments of Jews in Europe, the encyclopedia states that another extraordinary and well authenticated fact is that the European press, no less than European finance, is to a great extent under their control. The actual scope of Jewish influence on society, described by the full article, is even far more foreboding than that. But it's written by Jews. It could have been fit right into the protocols. And to continue with our author, Sir Foster Fraser, J. Foster Fraser, in The Conquering Jew, published in 1915, writes, few things are more remarkable than the way the Jews control the press in New York, London, Paris, Berlin, and Vienna. And the author notes that he, meaning Sir J. Froster Fraser, is pro-Jewish. Of course he is, or he wouldn't have the title Sir. The Jewish poet Bialik, in an address given to Jews at the University in Jerusalem on May 11, 1933, said not in vain had the Jews been drawn to journalism. In their hands, it became a weapon highly fitted to meet their needs in their war of survival. And the author notes, note the words, their needs and war. So the contention asserted in the protocols, and the fact that the press is in their means, is their means of maintaining control is corroborated by the Jews themselves. Even the reference books which journalists must necessarily consult are Jewish with a perpetual Jewish bias. 
the Dictionary of National Biography, had the Jew Sir Sidney Lee as editor, the Dictionary of English History, the Jew Sir Sidney Lowe, who also wrote the twelfth volume of the Political History of England, the Encyclopedia Britannica, under the editorship of Mr. Garvin, who served on the political staff of the Daily Telegraph under the Jew Burnham Lawson Levy, and worked with the Jew Cowan at the Newcastle Chronicle, has a large number of Jews as departmental editors and advisors. The Annual Register and the Statesman's Yearbook are edited by the Jew Epstein, the Victoria County History by the Jew Saltzman, even the Times protested against the Epstein bias in the annual register for 1938 concerning relations between Nazi Germany and Britain. Our review is not exhaustive. It is the custom of Jewish journalists to camouflage their names and origins more frequently than in most professions, and their identity is often difficult to prove. We shall take the well-known newspapers one by one, and we shall go through this entire booklet, so we shall repeat this discussion of these newspapers. We will leave most of the initials out of the names. I looked up a great number of them. I couldn't look them all up in, in one day in preparation for this presentation. There are so many of them. But I looked up a great number of them, and I did manage to substantiate a great number of the things that are said in this booklet, including the Chambers Encyclopedia article, which I plan on speaking about at length, and citing from at length later at the conclusion to this program. The Times, the Times of London, it's still around. It's still one of the biggest British newspapers. This newspaper was started in 1788 by John Walter, and has, with the exception of a short interval, been partly in the hands of the Walter family ever since. I'm not going to update too many of these. I will only discuss which of these newspapers is now defunct. So, this is all current as of 1939, unless I state otherwise. However, the paper was always under Jewish control after it had made its presence felt. Between 1841 and 1877, John Thaddeus De Delane, D-E-L-A-N-E, was its editor, and although we know of nothing wrong with his pedigree, he was an intimate friend of the Rothschild family and a constant and welcome visitor to their houses. So intimate, and the author is citing an actual Times article from November 23, 1926, so intimate that the two Rothschild daughters, afterwards Lady Battersea and Mrs. York, once they were married, often rode with Delane in Rotten Row as well as in Buckinghamshire. Evidently, they rode horses, and he took a kindly interest in their lessons. From the Rothschilds, the lane took his orders. From 1850 to 1854, Samuel Phillips, a Jew, was chief literary editor under the lane. This Jew had been helped by 
Sir Moses Montefiore, another Jew, of course, and, and a notable one, and the Duke of Sussex, and became baptized, and Jews did this often to enter into school or politics, and became baptized in order to be able to enter Sydney Sussex College. And as we shall learn at the end of this program, the Jews had a separate college of their own if they did not wish to become baptized. And in that aspect, our writer is quoting the Jewish Chronicle Supplement number 156 from April 1934. And he says that the example of his Christian enthusiasm being followed by his son, who actually became private secretary to the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Benson. Money can do anything, provided those who wield it are completely devoid of social sense. I would amend that to perhaps social conscience, as we all know that the Jews certainly are. In a circular letter dated 26th of March, 1852, Samuel Phillips tried to influence the provincial press not to pin Lord Darby down to a pledge of protection, which in the old acceptation is gone and cannot be revived. In other words, the Jew is telling the provincial press that the feudal system is gone and you can't go back to it. This paragraph reflects a principle of the provincial press which the Jews have both purposely confused and at the same time have destroyed. At one time, press ownership was seen as a form of public service. And the press itself was a fourth estate, which being subsidized publicly was expected in turn to guard the political order. Hence, a pledge of protection from a politician, from a lord in this case, which should have been accompanied by an oath of fealty, and they are remnants of the old feudal system. The Jews, having come to control of the press, deceptively maintain the ancient claims to the press as a fourth estate. But in fact, they have turned the press into a for-profit industry and have also employed it to destroy the old social order, the old political order, replacing it with their own. Money can do anything when there's no, <laughs> when there's no social conscience. The press has not been a fourth estate in several centuries, but instead it has functioned as a fifth column throughout the West. Returning to our author of our booklet, the Times corresponded during the Franco-Prussian War, and the Commune, meaning the Paris Commune, was a Jew, de Blauitz. This man obtained an advanced copy of the Treaty of Berlin when acting as Times correspondent at the Berlin Congress so that it was published in the Times at the same hour that it was being signed in Berlin, an act of bad faith which was thought to be very smart journalism. Another Franco-Prussian war correspondent of the Times was the Jew named Mels. 
The leading home correspondent for a time was Israel Davis. Once private secretary, and of course he's a Jew, right? Once private secretary to Sir David Solomons, another Jew, and part proprietor of the Jewish Chronicle. The editorial chair after Delane was occupied thus, from 1877 to 1884, Thomas Chenery, who came from Barbados and was a great Hebrew scholar and Orientalist, which seemed to be euphemisms for rabbi. 1884 to 1912, G. Earl Buckle, under Rothschild influence, and that's cited a book which is cited for that is The Reign of the House of Rothschild by an author named Corti, dated 1928, volume 2, page 453. I did not check to see if I could obtain a copy of that. G. Earl Buckle, Times editor from 1884 to 1912, pretty crucial years, under Rothschild influence, citing the reign of the House of Rothschild, where it is shown how the Rothschilds had been urged by a cabinet minister to bring pressure to bear on the times to modify, to induce it to modify its hostile attitude towards Germany during the Boer War in 1900. In other words, the English fighting the Boers didn't want to have to fight the Germans too. They did that after the Boer War. From 1912 to 1919, the editor was G. Dawson, and from 1919 to 1923, H. Wickham Steed, our booklet says something about these men later, and from 1923 to the present time, 1939, G. Dawson again, and they will speak of him later. All these have served by their silence, meaning that Steed and Dawson and Buckle were not Jews, but they kept silent about many manners, many matters which helped the Jews. Their silence helped the Jews. All these have served by their silence, the Jewish money power, as did Delane. Only H. Wickham Steed occasionally dropped a hint or two. But now his mouth is closed. He was present at the Soviet ambassador's reception, held on March 4, 1936, and that would be when Britain normalized relations with the Jewish thugs that conquered Russia. The assistant manager, 1890-1908, and manager from 1908-1911, was Moberly Bell, C.F. Moberly Bell usually considered to be a Jew. On the editorial staff from 1899 to 1909 was the half-Jew, Mr. Amory, who also edited the Times' History of the South African War, probably so that the Jewish cause of the war should be forgotten by the public. D.D. Braham, or Braham, a Jew, was on a time staff from 1897 to 1914, first as correspondent in Berlin, St. Petersburg, and Constantinople, and then from 1912 as head of the Imperial and Foreign Department and the director of the Times Publishing Company. 
He left the Times in 1914 to become editor of the Australian newspapers, the Sydney Daily Telegraph, Forum, and West Australian. He rejoined the Times staff in 1930. In 1908, the paper was taken over by a company, whose chiefs were Viscount Northcliffe. Sir John Ellerman, a Jew, described as a Jew by the Frankfurter Volksblatt, 4th of July, 1938, and it also said he was married to a Jewess, H. Arnholtz, a Jew, and Sir Pomeroy Burton, a naturalized alien of unidentified race, probably Jewish, who was formerly on the editorial staff of the Jews of the Jew Pulitzer's New York World, and we could bet that Sir Pomeroy Burton being knighted and a naturalized alien was certainly a Jew. Between 1911 and 1919, the Times religious articles were by the Reverend S.K. Knight, Bishop of Jarrow, who was really a Jew called Kirschbaum. And we will see that Jews in England at this time were using the title Reverend. We have that in writing. The Times today, 1939, ostensibly, is owned by Major J.J. Astor and one of the Walter family. The former is a director of the Jewish Bank of Hambros, whilst the daughter of John Walter who describes himself in Who's Who as the chief proprietor of the Times, married in 1938 the son of the late coal king of the late Czechoslovakia, the Jew Julius Petschek, the most powerful Jew next to Rothschild in that pro-Bolshevik country. The Honorable R.H. Brand, another director of the Times Publishing Company, is managing director of the Jewish Bank of Lizard Brothers. The other directors of the Times Company are also associated with Jews on the directorships of companies. The present editor of the Times is Mr. G. Dawson, who used to call himself Robinson. He was formerly editor of the Johannesburg Star, a Jew mine owner's paper, and has been private secretary to Viscount Milner. And Milner wasn't a Jew, but he was the British politician most responsible for leading England into the Boer War. His diplomatic correspondent is a Jew, Polyakov, an intimate friend of the Zenist leader Chaim Weizmann whose pen name is Augur, meaning Polyakov's pen name is Augur. The assistant editor of the Educational Supplement has, since 1919, been Mrs. Radice, whose mother was a Jewish Diagualar. The Times Historian's History of the World was revised by the Jew A.S. Rappaport. The city editor of the Times between 1905 and 1910 was Mr. Hartley Withers, an ex-employee of the Jewish firm Seligman Brothers, and now editor of the Jewish-owned Economist. And that's their treatment of the Times, which is probably the biggest conservative paper through British history if I had to guess. 
The Daily Telegraph. This paper was bought in 1855 by the two Jews, J. Moses Levi and Edward Levi Lawson, or Levy, I should say, L-E-V-Y. The latter became Viscount Burnham, and on his death the Telegraph was carried on until 1916 by his son. The first Viscount was President of the Royal Institute of Journalists, 1886. The second Viscount occupied the same position in 1910, and was President of the Empire Press Union, and also, in 1920-1923, President of the Imperial Press Conferences. A couple of pretty influential Jews, I should say a trio. Among the leader writers of this Levy regime have been David Anderson, a Jew, who also wrote for the Jewish Chronicle, and P.P. Benny, a Jew, once private secretary to Sir Moses Montefiore and connected with the Jewish World, another publication. In 1927, the Levies, or Burnhams, sold the telegraph to the Berry Brothers, now, the Berry brothers have had between them no less than three baronies. But Burke's peerage gives only the names of their parents and no clue to their race. They deny any Jewish blood, but if Burke's peerage only gives the name of their parents and can't really trace them back before that, they're probably Jews. The titles of the barons are Buckland, which is now extinct, Camros and Kemsley. We are, however, reminded by the Berry's family relationships, how closely they follow the Jew interests. To take Baron Kemsley's children first, the eldest son married the daughter of Arali, R-A-L-L-I, whose stepfather was Louis Einstein. The second son married a Rothschild. That's nothing that you do casually unless you're either nobility or a Jew. And of course, this article is also showing us the extent to which much of the English nobility is Jewish or has intermarried with Jews. Two of Baron Camrose's children have married into the family of the Birkenhead earldom, which shows so clearly its descent from a non-Aryan oriental named Bathsheba, Jew or Gypsy, we know not. With the Berry family, in its newspaper undertakings, is Baron Elith, I-L-I-F-F-E. The Berry Elith Rothschild combination is known as the Allied Newspapers Limited. The Telegraph today, and this paper is still a large paper in Britain, the Telegraph today is still managed by a Jewish Lawson, Levy. His former name was Levy. But the editor is Arthur E. Watson, whose father was an Aaron Watson of unknown race. Its leader writer for foreign affairs was the Jewish professor M.A. Gerthwal, their diplomatic correspondent. One of the assistant editors is the Jew Pulvermacher, who had been 32 years on the staff of the Daily Mail. And that's the next paper that is treated by our, our author, the Daily Mail, which is also still a large newspaper in England. Established and maintained by the Harmsworth family, 
Lords Norcliffe and Rothermere. It now belongs to Associated Newspapers Limited, which is governed by the Daily Mail Trust. On the latter, per besides Harmsworth's, are Sir S. Hardman Lever, from whose ancestry nothing has yet been established definitely by us as to race, and F. A. Sarvasi, a Jew from Hungary, with long commercial and banking tentacles, as well as others. Now, this Hardman Lever character is an interesting character. According to Wikipedia, this man was a commoner and an accountant who worked at his trade through the 1890s in London, Liverpool, and New York City until, during the First World War, he was a financial secretary at the British Ministry of Munitions, and then for the British as a finance commissioner in the United States. He was employed in the British bureaucracy through the 1930s and became a newspaper magnate or on the board of this large newspaper. Lord Northcliffe was under was early under Jewish influence, for he often lived with the Jews Lucian Wolf, a Jewish journalist and a historian for the Jews, who we actually quoted in some of our Jews in Europe presentations, and Edward Morton, when in his early days he had quarreled with his father, and it is claimed that Morton is British, our author here insisted he is a Jew. The editor from 1899 to 1926, the editor of the Daily Mail, was Thomas Marlowe, who married the daughter of the socialist, quote-unquote, intellectual, because there aren't really any socialist intellectuals, not socialist in the sense of Marxist intellectuals. That's an oxymoron. John Morrison Davidson, who was always politically associated with subversive Jews. In 1913 and 14, the sub-editor of the Daily Mail was the Jew H.V. Morton, Henry Vollum Morton. For 32 years, the Mail had the Jew Pulvermacher on its staff, he becoming chief sub-editor, night editor, assistant editor, and in 1930, acting editor. He handled the war news of the Daily Mail in the Great War, meaning the First World War. The news editor from 1900 to 1902 was the Jew R.D. Blumenfeld. The financial editor until recently has been the crypto-Jew H.A. Meredith. One of the special writers in correspondence has been the Jew Falk, B. Falk. He is mentioned quite often here in relation to several newspapers. The Jew Sir S. Lowe, Sidney Lowe, from 1923 to 1930, spent one month every year with the Daily Mail, during which he was responsible for the leading articles. In this Jew's biography, it is stated that he had the unique privilege of walking into the sanctums of cabinet ministers and receiving the fullest permission to make what extracts he thought fit from their private diaries. We suppose this sort of thing commanded a good remuneration from any daily paper, 
and Sir Sidney Lowe was the uncle of Madame Litvinov, wife of the Jewish Foreign Minister of the Soviet. At present, June 1939, the mail is under the control of Lord Rothmere's son, Esmond Harmsworth, and has moved decidedly to the left. And the next paper to be described, the Jewish connections to be described, are the Daily Express, which is also still in operation. This belongs to Lord Beaverbrook, chief shareholder in its official owning company, London Express Newspapers Limited. His son is a director in the Jewish Deutsch-controlled Odeon Theatres Limited. The chairman is the Jew R.D. Blumenfeld. In 1921, the shareholders included Sir Ernest Schiff, E. Kessel, and F.G. Lindell, all Jews. Since 1904 until recent years, the editor has been the Jew Blumenfeld. The present editor is Mr. A. or Arthur Christensen, and Arthur Christensen seems to be a Christian, the son of a Scandinavian shipwright. For years up to 1934, the chief foreign correspondent was the Jew H. A. Greenwald. The Jews Mosley and Raphael have been on the staff among many other Jews. William Hickey, whose real name was Dryberg, of this paper denies that he is a Jew. He wrote in February 1938 in the New Times and Ethiopian News that in Spain it was General Franco, not the Reds, who attacked religion. Now, it's pretty common knowledge that the Bolsheviks of Spain were lynching priests and raping and gutting nuns, burning monasteries and churches. Our author says, if he is not a Jew, therefore, he is a good imitation. The leading sports writer is the Jew H. Rose. Beachcomber, an alias, a pseudonym, who has been writing since 1924 for this journal, is a half-Jew named Morton. Another Jewish Morton was on the staff from 1921. The assistant editor was Captain J.B. Arbuthnot, whose wife was the granddaughter, granddaughter of Bernal Osborne. Now, <coughs> so much for the children of Captain J.B. Arbuthnot, right that family off. Bernal Osborne was born in 1808 as a Jew, and he was baptized as Ralph Bernal Osborne, Jr. He was the son of a Sephardic Spanish Jew, Ralph Bernal, who, quote-unquote, converted to become a crypto-Jew. He converted to become a politician, sitting in the British Parliament for several different districts from 1818 through 1852. Bernal Jr. was also a politician and took the name of his English wife upon marriage. The Jew marries an English woman and takes the English women, woman's name, and he made himself Ralph Osborne. And he, too, was a politician and sat in Parliament for various districts, like they moved to him and his father both, served in three or four different places and were elected to parliament in three or four different places three or four different towns and villages or whatever and and i didn't 
jot all the names down. But these that this Bernal father and son, that these Spanish Sephardic Jews, that they would probably make an interesting half a program one night, right? They they really would. That they are um that they are multi-generational British politicians who were basically crypto-Jews all the way back in the early to mid-1800s. So it didn't start with Disraeli. And they converted that they had these fake conversions to Christianity so that they could sit in office in the 1800s. As early as 1818. That's only six years after the War of 1812. And there were Jews all over British politics. The News Chronicle, the next paper to be treated. This combined the old Daily News with the old Daily Chronicle. And this is the first newspaper mentioned here which is now defunct, having been absorbed into the Daily Mail in October of 1960. The Daily News belonged to a Quaker, Emily Cadbury. It had a Jew, a Kalish, as sub-editor in 1890 under a former regime, and became the mouthpiece of Lord Roseberry, who was married to a Rothschild. Scratch another English noble family. The Daily Chronicle was acquired in 1918 by the supporters of Mr. Lloyd George, including Sir T. Cato, the late Lord Redding's familiar. In 1926, the late Lord Redding, a Jew, headed the Daily Chronicle Investment Corporation. The News Chronicle was owned until November 1936, jointly by this last-named corporation and the Inverisk Paper Company. The Daily Chronicle Investment Corporation holds United Newspapers Limited, on the directorate of which we find Sir Grotrian, who is an important Freemason, and whose son married a Jewish, and B.H. Binder, who is Jewish. The Inverisk Paper Company worked under B.H. Binder, or perhaps Binder, and had J.H. Newcomb on its directorate, and who was also in the Jewish bank S. Jaffet and Company. The News Chronicle is now owned by Daily News Limited and is again under Cadbury control. An early leader writer was the Jewish R.H. Bernays. The Jew professor Gareth Wall was also a frequent writer for the paper, as is the Jew Edinger. It is significant that the Malaga correspondent of this paper was a Jew, Arthur Kosler, arrested and kept in custody by Franco for some time. He had stated in a publication I couldn't locate called Menschenopfer Unerhort, published in Paris, that the Spanish War was planned by the German and Italian governments to obtain control by them over mines in Spain. Now, I did find another reference to Menschenopfer Unerhort, which I believe was in an a scholarly paper online. I can't remember offhand. I'm sorry. I looked for the paper itself and couldn't find it. So, author Kosler, 
was arrested in Spain and then later wrote that the Spanish War was planned by the German and Italian governments to obtain control by them over the mines in Spain. Your Jew author Kosler lying in the, in, in the newspapers, lying incredibly obvious lies. While we are not able to find corroboration for this statement, it is clearly representative of Jewish propaganda of the period. On February 25th, 1939, the News Chronicle said, Anti-Semitism is a curse of such a desperate character that we must direct all our energies to destroying it. It also admits that a number of Jews sit in the editorial departments of the Express and of the Evening Standard, papers owned by the News Chronicles. The Daily Herald, the next paper, and this, this original Daily Herald closed in 1964, and shortly afterwards it reopened as The Sun, which in turn was later purchased by Rupert Murdoch and exists exists today. The Daily Herald, established in 1912, and soon developed under the editorship of Mr. Lansbury, married to a daughter of a Jew named Isaac Brine, who is a Jew's friend. This paper was early on financed by two Jews, Baron de Forest and Baron von Horst, and the Jewish H.D. Harbin, with Countess de la War, made possible the purchase of the paper by the Victoria Printing House Press. Under Lansbury, the director, a director of the Daily Herald received 75,000 pounds from the Soviet government of Russia, being the proceeds of the sale of Russian royal jewels. Mr. Lansbury is said to have been unaware of this. His son, Edgar, received the money. The newspaper eventually refused the money, and the director resigned. The present Daily Herald Limited is dominated by the Jew Julius Salter Elias of Odom's Press Limited, and he is managing director. This Jew is now, this Jew referring to Julius Salter Elias of Odom's Press, a name which we will see here several times, this Jew is now Baron Southwood. Odom's Press is in Jewish shareholding hands. From 1913 to 1922, the Herald was in the hands of Mr. Robert Williams, married to a Jewish woman named Perlman. Its leader writer, 1915 through 19, and associate editor, 1919 to 1922, has been Mr. Gerald Gould, married to a Jewess the sister-in-law of Israel Zangwill. It's a small world, this Jewish journalistic world. In 1919, its literary editor was the Jew Siegfried Sassoon. Hanan Swaffer of Yeomanstock has been on its staff from 1931. It has always supported the Jewish Soviet of Russia. And according to Wikipedia, Swaffer was a British journalist who, as it is said, although his views were left-wing, he worked mostly for right-wing publications, many of them owned by Lord Northcliffe. It is not a novelty that supposed 
left-wing writers work for supposed right-wing papers, if those papers are controlled by Jews, because left and right-wing really don't mean much to Jews. There's only Jew-wing and Christian-wing. That's the way we should really see it. The advertising director, A. Phillips, director and insurance manager, N. Cantor, advertising manager, M. Poiser, are all Jewish. The feature editor is the Jew, A. L. Easterman. Mr. George Slocum, married to Marie Karlinskaya, is a mysterious individual who acts as a Paris correspondent. He has been privileged he has been a privileged onlooker to most of the international conferences since Versailles, and we expect he knows how to spell Rothschild. Among the special writers for the Herald is the Jewish V. H. V. Morton since 1931, and, and his name has also appeared here in relation to several papers. The Manchester Guardian another paper which is still around. The paper is devoted to Jewish interests and has on its directorate the Jewish Sir Ernest Simon. A special correspondent was Michael Farbman. Born in Russia from 1917 to 1920, he worked for the paper. And it is stated in a publication called Plain English that Michael Farbman is Jewish. Now, in October 1922, two years after he left the Manchester Guardian, Michael Farbman was granted an interview with Vladimir Lenin himself, which was published in both Pravda and in this paper. The interview itself is certainly a piece of propaganda, where Lenin is portrayed as a legitimate statesman, friendly towards the British, and opening the door for relations between his regime and the British government. I'm going to link that interview with this podcast when it's posted this evening. It'll be in the notes. Farman's line of questioning certainly indicated his own favor of the conclusion of an Anglo-Russian agreement, as he himself called it. The interview ran as a newspaper article is in itself a good example of how the press molds public opinion rather than informing the public. Here we will include a link to that paper, which, is, which we found at Marxists.org, that interview. We do that reluctantly. We don't like to link to a website like Marxists.org, but we have to demonstrate we have to show this interview. We have to give people access to this interview. J.R. Scott, speaking of the Manchester Guardian, J.R. Scott is present chairman of the Mas Manchester Guardian Company. He is also a director of the Jewish company, Henry Simon Limited. Now there's some short notes about some smaller papers here. The Yorkshire Post, from 1925 to 1936, the chief sub-editor was a Jew named Solomon. The Evening News, under the same ownership as the Daily Mail, the Jew Falk has been one of its editors. Beaufort, another pseudonym, its tipster is the Jew Abrahams. The Evening Standard is associated with the Daily Press, which is under 
Daily Express, which is under Jewish control. The Star is owned by Daily News Limited, which is under Jewish control. The Observer. This paper is run by the Astor family, who is also involved with the management of the Times. It once belonged to the two Jews, Lionel Lawson and Julius Beer. The latter son, F. Beer, owned the paper from 1880 and edited it from 1894. He married a Sassoon, and their wedding breakfast was at the house of the Right Honorable W. E. Gladstone. Mrs. Beer was assistant editor and editor in 1893. Gerald Gould, married to Israel Zangwill's sister-in-law, has been one of its literary critics. Since 1907, Mr. Garvin has been editor. He once observed, the best exponents of Christianity are Jews, in a book that's cited from a book called The Real Jew by someone named Newman on page 9. There's a few things our author had missed here. Gerald Gould was also once the publicity manager of the Daily Herald. But he had further notoriety than that. He and his Jewish wife, Barbara Ayrton Gould, were among the founders of the United Suffragists in February of 1914. Through that organization, they actively campaigned for women's suffrage in Britain until it became a fact in 1918. Barbara Ayrton's sister was the feminist and author Judith Ayrton, who was married to the Jew Israel Zangwill. What a small world it is in Jewish journalistic circles. There's no doubt. The Reynolds newspaper. This newspaper closed in 1967. This belongs to the Cooperative Press Limited. Bernard Falk, mentioned here often, a Jew was once its editor. News of the World. This newspaper started in 1843, and it closed in 2011. And some of our listeners might remember the scandal that it closed in. This paper was at one time the largest selling newspaper in the English language. It reached a circulation of three million in the 1920s, and it still sold nearly three million copies a week, even as it closed. And, of course, it's just a garbage tabloid. But it closed when it was embroiled in a scandal over some sort of wiretaps and other things like that that I really didn't pay too much attention to when it happened five years ago. It's just another Jewish newspaper. They're all dirty. They're all no good. They're all liars. Who cares? I don't care. I would never read one. News of the World. The editor is Sir E. Carr a director of George Noon's Limited, one of whose directors married the late Lord Melkitt's daughter. He is a director of the Western Mail with members of the Berry family, which have been mentioned prior to this. And here our author leaves us guessing, unless we are familiar with the Jews behind the titles and names. This Lord Melkitt was Alfred Moritz Mond, the first Baron Melkitt, who died in 1930. He was a British industrialist, financier, and politician.
He wasn't really British at all. He was a very active Zionist, and he was a Jew, of course. But Emsley Carr, mentioned here, was evidently a Breton from Leeds. News of the World was owned by his uncle, Henry Lascelles Carr, the son of a Wesleyan minister. George Nunes, mentioned here, his company's mentioned here, and he will be mentioned later, George Nunes, N-E-W-N-E-S, perhaps it should be pronounced Nunes, was an English publisher and editor who was born the son of a Congregationalist minister. So not every early newspaper man in England was a Jew, and even the Jews bought most of the newspapers they came to control from Englishmen. They didn't found many of them themselves. The Sunday Referee, and after this booklet was written in 1939, this paper was merged with a competitor, the Sunday Chronicle. The Sunday Referee, one of two of the founders in 1877, was a Jew named Samson. This paper used to expose the Jewish money fraud of the gold standard. When Sir Oswald Stoll, whose real name is Gray, he having taken the name of his stepfather, contributed to its columns. It was recently owned by the Jew, Oster, of Oster Brothers. Its managing editor until, Mark, until 1935 was a Jew named Mark Golden. He and the literary editor accepted an article from Mr. Elyster Crowley, which, however, was not published. The Paris correspondent in 1910 was the Jew named Raphael. <coughs> the notorious and Jewish Madame Tabois became a regular contributor. It is now merged with the Sunday Chronicle. The dramatic critic for many years was a Jew named Morton. The Sunday Express under similar management to the Daily Express, the Jew Edinger is a frequent contributor. Now, the Sunday Express and the Daily Express are actually still around and under the same management, and apparently they were when this booklet was written. Today, the same company also owns the Daily Star, a paper begun in 1978. And the parent company of the Sunday Express, the Daily Express, the Daily Star, is now under the control of the Jew, the English Jew, Richard Desmond, who owns several other newspaper and television concerns. And if I had done that and looked up every one of these newspapers, I'm sure for the newspapers that are still open, the results would have been the same. They're still controlled by Jews, and they've grown into much larger media concerns for the most part. The Sunday Dispatch, which folded in 1961, this is a Harmsworth paper, so it's related to the Daily Mail management, and the Jew Falk was its editor from 1919 to 1930. The Sunday Times and Sunday Chronicle now belong to Allied Newspapers Limited, which also owns the Daily Telegraph. The Sunday Times was once edited and managed by a Sassoon, who is, at the time of this writing, Mrs. F.A. Beer. Its dramatic and art critic from 1883 to 94 was the Jew M.C. Solomon, and we had mentioned this Sassoon, Mrs. Beer, in relation to another newspaper earlier on, so they're all interrelated.
Screwtator. Screwtator is another pseudonym of another tattletale. I, I, I remember um, Deep Throat in the 1970s was the secret individual who Woodward and Bernstein got all their information about Richard Nixon from. And, and here we have the third encounter with such a persona in three of these Jewish newspapers in London, so that this must be something that the Jews have been doing back forever, right? Hiding behind these pseudonyms so that they could, as secret tell-alls, so that they could sell us a bunch of bullshit and and people, oh, it's he he's anonymous, so it must be true. He doesn't want to reveal his his true identity, so what he's saying must be true because he's taking a risk of doing this. What bullshit? <laughs> what? That that's a straight Jew trick. Screwtator of the Sunday Times is Herbert Sidebotham, a Zenist member of the British Palestine Committee 1916. Now, our author doesn't tell us how this information was divulged. Maybe eventually it was made public. I, I don't know, but that they seem pretty confident in their identification of, so far, three of these individuals. Another newspaper, The People, established in 1881, it was edited for several years to the year 1900 by the Jew H.B. Vogel. It is now controlled by the Jew J.S. Elias, Baron Southwood, through Odom's Press Limited. He is managing director of the paper. Illustrated Daily Papers, and here we're going to discuss little comments about several of them. The Daily Mirror is controlled by anonymous bank nominees. The Daily Sketch, and also the Sunday Graphic, is a very leafy paper. See the Daily Telegraph. The managing editor of the Daily Sketch was once H.J. Heitner, and its sub-editor, a Jew named Friedman, and both of them are Jews. Now, the Daily Sketch closed in 1971 when it was absorbed into the Daily Mail. The Daily Mirror is still in operation. It still has an average daily circulation of nearly a million as of March of 2014. It is run by Trinity Mirror PLC, which is said to be the largest British newspaper and magazine publisher. The chairman is David Grigson, and I couldn't find much information on him, personal information, and the CEO is apparently a Jew, and his name is Simon Fox. Another paper, John Bull was founded with Jewish money by Horatio Bottomley, whose racial origin is still a mystery to us. His daughter married J.D. Kahn, a Jew, and godson of Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederated States in America. Now, I tried to corroborate that, and I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything at all on J.D. Kahn. It is now owned by Odom's Press Limited, run by the Jew Elias, J.S. Elias, or Baron Southwood. The name, our author states, that the name John Bull seems attractive to Jewish mongers of circumcised news. For it was the Jew, S. Phillips, who founded and edited a John Bull newspaper in the first half of the 19th century. So we see the name was around before the Civil War. This Horatio Bottomley is an interesting character. 
he is said to have been an english financier journalist editor newspaper proprietor and member of parliament from 1906 who was convicted of fraud in 1922 and sentenced to seven years in prison his origins are murky he evidently began his working career after leaving an orphanage at the age of 14. So little is known about his origins. Bottomley also co-founded the famous Financial Times in 1988, which is still operating, and it's under Japanese ownership now. Some defunct daily papers. In 1904, the Standard was sold to Sir N.A. Pearson, who married a daughter of the Jew Lord Melkitt. Its literary editor was then the Jew Sir Sidney Lowe, already mentioned here, and Pearson was also mentioned here before. And there is still a media company in Britain named Pearson that I'm pretty sure is related to this Sir N.A. Pearson. In a speech in the House of Commons, November 21st, 1938, Right Honorable Johnston, Minister of Parliament, said, At the outbreak of the last war, the Standard had to close its doors because the Austrian embassy, which had been surreptitiously financing it, could no longer make payments. The Jew, Sir Sidney Lowe, edited St. James' Gazette, from 1888 to 1897, when that paper was purchased by a Mr. Steinkopf. It is also defunct. The Westminster Gazette passed through the hands of an Astor, and then to Sir George Nunes, or Nunes, or Nunes, or Nunes. Here the author of our booklet speculates as to whether this name Nunes, N-E-W-N-E-S, is related to the Morano name Nunes. And the Westminster Gazette had passed through his hands until in 1808, 1908, it was bought by the Jew Sir Alfred Mond. Another Jew named Henry was also interested in it. Its editor from 1922 to 1928 was J.B. Hopman, who married a Jewish woman named Adler. Now, after this booklet was printed, this J.B. Hobman edited several published books for Zionist Jewish authors, one which concerned itself with the economic prospects of Palestine. I couldn't find evidence that J.B. Hobman himself was a Jew, but he's a damned good candidate. The Echo had Sir Arthur Arnold as its first editor, and then passed into the hands of Baron Grant, an absconding Jew whose real name was Gottheimer. And I'm not sure any Jew is really an absconding Jew. They could stop going to the synagogue, but they're still Jews. The financial papers. The Economist's chief shareholders in 1934 included the Rothschilds, Schroeders, and Sir Strakosch. This paper supports sound currency. Jewish restriction of the means of exchange with a view to holding it for ransom. Its present editor is H. Withers, who was once employed by Seligman Brothers. The Financial Times is a berry-controlled paper, which is related to the Daily Telegraph in management, and that was the paper co-founded by Horatio Bottomley. The Financial News Company has Mr. Bracken as chairman, 
who is managing director of the Jewish-controlled Economist. The Jew Paul Einzig is foreign editor. The paper made its first appearance under the editorship of a Jew, H. H. Marx, in 1884. Now, under the subheading, The Illustrated Weeklies. The Illustrated Newspapers Limited, these are more like glossy magazines, controlling the Illustrated London News, which is still published. The Sketch, which merged with the Daily Graphic in 1946. The Spear, which closed in 1964. The Tatler, which is still published by Cond Nast now. The Bystander, which merged with the Tatler in 1940. The Graphic, which closed in 1932, if it's the same graphic. And Eve, and the fate of this Eve publication is ambiguous. And that's because there was a different magazine named Eve published by the BBC. And I can't keep, I can't find anything on the closing or failure of this particular glossy magazine named Eve. Now, this company, Illustrated Newspapers Limited, which controlled all of these glossy magazines, has, in August of 1937, been bought by two Jews, Sir J. Ellerman and Baron Southwood, J. S. Elias. These papers vie with one another in photographic representations of our new slant-eyed and armenoid aristocracy, so that the public will get used to them and see nothing alien about them. The editor of The Spear since 1926 has been H.J. Heitner, a Jew. The News Review is controlled by the Jew Corda and is connected with Odom's Press, J.S. Elias's outfit. Cavalcade is published by the Jew Mark Golden. Picture Post by the Jew S. Laurent. Now this booklet, and that's the end of our booklet, it ends rather unceremoniously, this booklet was published by the Imperial Fascist League at 30 Craven Street, London, in 1937 and updated and republished in 1939. Before presenting it here this evening, we were able to check much of it for accuracy. We couldn't possibly check every name. We will attach a facsimile of the original booklet to the transcript of this podcast. It's usually at the bottom of the page, but I'll probably link it in the text as well where I introduce it. While the Jewish connections mentioned in relation to some of the newspapers listed here are tenuous, a couple of them, for instance, it is unlikely that George Nunes was a Murano Jew named Nunes. The great majority of the connections listed here are valid and the more prolific newspapers and publishing companies certainly had the strongest connections to Jews in both their ownership and their operation. There should be little doubt upon examining this evidence that from the end of the 19th century, and in many cases earlier than that, Jews had a great deal of influence over the people of Britain by their complete control of the print media and the positions they occupied in the newsrooms and on the editorial boards of every prominent British newspaper. For that reason, 
we see the exuberant confidence that the authors of the protocols profess and their ability to maintain their rule over the people. They knew what they could do. Even Chambers' Encyclopedia said that another extraordinary and well-authenticated fact is that the European press, no less than European finance, is to a great extent under their control. This encyclopedia, in its articles on Jews, breaks Jewish history into nine chronological periods. And here I'm going to read two paragraphs. Here is what it says in part of the latest or ninth chronological period. And this is from Chambers Encyclopedia, and it's already posted at Christagenia. It will be linked to this, the, the appropriate volume will be linked to this podcast as well. The ninth period extends from 1755 to the present time. Encouraged by the spirit of the 18th century, Moses Mendelssohn opened to his co-religionists a new era which, as in the Middle Ages, first manifested itself in the national literature, meaning Jewish literature. Its character, contents, expression, and even its phraseology were changed. Poetry, language, philology, criticism, education, history, and literature have been earnestly cultivated. I guess they perfected Yiddish. The sacred books have been translated by them into the languages of modern Europe, and foreign works into Hebrew, and many of this once proscribed and detested race have taken an important part in the public and scientific life of Europe. Among the many illustrious names of this last period, we can select only a few, like Mendelssohn, Maimon, Benzieb, Heidenheim, Rappaport, Krakmal, Zunz, Jost, Geiger, First, Sox, Frankel, Steinschneider, Gretz, Heinrich Gretz, evidently, Jelinek, Philipson, Monk, Salvador, Reggio, Luzado, chiefly cultivators of literature with reference to their own creed and nationality. So these Jews are lauded to Gentiles merely for writing about Jews and Jewish things. And our article continues in the next paragraph, which is a little longer and even more revolting, to enumerate names of those who were and are illustrious in general literature, in law, philosophy, medicine, philology, mathematics, spells, letters, etc. We cannot even attempt, since there is not one country in Europe which does not count Jews amongst the foremost and most brilliant representatives of its intellectual progress. And, and of course, you can manufacture that, that, that perception if you control the newspapers very, and the banks very easily. Of Germany, considered to be in the vanguard of European learning, Bunsen said that the greater part of the professors... Now, remember what Dr. Wiebe wrote in Germany and the Jewish problem, and then listen to this, because this is basically corroborating everything that Dr. Wiebe said, except that these people think it's good, and we will find out why, and Dr. Wiebe thought it was a problem, and we know why. Bunsen said that the greater part of the professors, the German professors, at its universities and academies were Jews, or of Jewish origin, 
and he names Neander, Gans, Benery, Wheel, Benfi, Stahl, Dernberg, Valentin, Lazarus, Hertz, and Steinthal. Certainly a most startling fact. Opert, Dartmistester, Bernays, Sanders, Karl Marx. Now, they're lauding Karl Marx, right? I guess he was a great economist. LaSalle, Emile Franzos, Cremot, Jessel, Sylvester, Meldola, Emma Lazarus, there's another one, are likewise eminent names in literature, law, and science. While in finance, statesmanship, and philanthropy, as if charity was an actual vocation, right? The Jews coined this term philanthropy to describe people who give money away. Charity is not a vocation. I'm sorry, it's not. A way for Jews to skim money taken from others. That's not a vocation. It's stealing. We don't need philanthropists to give money away. We only need wealthy people to give money away. The names of, in relation to finance, statesmanship, and philanthropy, I'm sorry, the names of Rothschild, Disraeli, Montefiore, are universally familiar. If Rothschild was such a great philanthropist, he wouldn't be running the world. Well, he's really not, but he's part of a cabal that does. Another extraordinary and well-authenticated fact is that the European press, no less than European finance, is to a great extent under their control, while, on the other hand, names like Heine, Born, Berthold Auerbach, Henriette Hertz, Jules Janin, Felix Mendelssohn, Bartholdi, Halevi, Meyerbeer, Mosehelis, Joachim, Ernst Rubinstein, Wieniawaski, I'm probably butchering a couple of these names, Grissy, Braham, Guglini, Da Costa, Rachel, Davison, Benderman, besides hosts of others less familiar to English ears, who shine in all branches of art, music, sculpture, painting, without sense for the drama, etc., show plainly how unjust is the reproach of their being an abstract people. Everything they produce is garbage, but the Jews are also the art critics in the newspaper. The Jews are also the literary critics in the newspaper. So all this stuff, all this garbage they produce is absolutely wonderful. It's beautiful art. Yeah, right, okay. When you own the papers and you have no social conscience and you make the money, you could do anything. <laughs> show plainly how unjust is the reproach of their being an abstract people without sense for the bright side of life and the arts that embellish it briefly they are by the unanimous verdict of the historians and philosophers of our times which jewish money also purchased reckoned among the chief promoters of the development of humanity and civilization what has been their reward we have seen Happily, the growth of religious toleration, which Jewish money also purchased, which is the distinctive feature of the present age, has changed all this. In every country to which modern civilization has penetrated, the Jews now enjoy, if not the full social recognition. We don't see too many Jews in Kenya and Somali, Somalia, do we? We don't see too many Jews in Borneo or Bangladesh. 
if not the full social recognition that is accorded to them in England and France, all ordinary civil and political rights, why don't the Jews bring their civilization and their culture to Kenya and Uganda and Zimbabwe? Okay, I'm being sarcastic. Russia and Romania alone, and, and here this is important to understand because this, is, this article is published in a 1901 encyclopedia. Russia and Romania alone among Western peoples still maintain towards them an attitude of medieval barbarism. But so anomalous a condition of affairs, of affairs cannot long continue, and the time is surely not far distant when even in these countries they will be accorded a fair measure of the rights of humanity. Yeah, it's enforced in Russia. Anti-Semitism is punishable by death. <laughs> so you kiss the Jews' ass or you die. I had to rant through the middle of that paragraph because if I didn't rant I'd probably cry the publishers of Chambers Encyclopedia and this is the real kicker we have just seen this that this simmering panegyric how wonderful the Jews are in this Scottish encyclopedia the publishers of Chambers Encyclopedia William and Robert Chambers of Edinburgh Scotland are said to have been born into a rich mill-owning family in Peebles in Scotland in 1800 and 1802 respectively. But it is also said that the family went bust during the war with France. So they too began by founding a newspaper in 1832. The first edition of their encyclopedia, maybe 20 years later, was merely a translation of a German encyclopedia, the forerunner of the still-noted Brockhaus Encyclopedia, which is pretty famous in Germany. Now, this article is published in 1901, and evidently it was carried over from an older edition of the encyclopedia. This article on Jews, found in Chambers' Encyclopedia, was written by Jews, as it is attributed to Isidore Harris. Now, that's an English enough sounding name, but Isidore Harris is a Jew. His name sounds English, and he sometimes even used the title Reverend in his writing. And that looks Christian. Oh, he's not a Jew, he's a Reverend. We'll see in a minute. And Emanuel Deutsch co-wrote this article. So Isidore Harris and Emanuel Deutsch wrote this article. Emanuel Deutsch is a Jew and a so-called Semitic scholar, which also seems to be a euphemism for rabbi. And it is reported in the Literary World, volume 42, on page 47, under the date for December 26, 1890, that Harish and Deutsch collaborated on another article of Jewish interest entitled The Jews in Russia. The same section of that Literary World publication magnifies the virtues of Chambers' Encyclopedia. So there is no wonder that this article found in the same encyclopedia sounds like an advertisement extolling the benefits of having Jews in society.
This by itself is a testament of Jewish influence that such a panegyric was shamelessly published in an otherwise scholarly encyclopedia. In turn, the Jews rewarded the encyclopedia by publishing good words about it in, in their literary world, in, in their literary reviews. After Emanuel Deutsch was dead, Isidore Harris wrote a book which was titled History of Jews College, November 11, 1855 to November 10, 1905. This college is a college for Jews. If Jews wanted to go to other universities, they had to, quote-unquote, convert to Christianity. And, and, of course, they didn't all want to do that, so they had their own college. And Isidore Harris wrote this book, History of the Jews College, for this 50-year period, in which he explains that one of the Rothschilds acquired Deutsch's library, Deutsch's books, for the library of the Jews College, and marveled at the copy of the Talmud that Deutsch had in his possession when he died. In the back pages of that book, that same book, History of the Jews College, there was a short autobiography of the college staff, a short listing with autobiographies of the college staff, where it becomes clear that Isidore Harris used the title of reverend in his writing because he was a minister in the West Synagogue of the West London Synagogue of British Jews, where he was appointed in 1881. He was also, before that, a minister of the North London Synagogue from 1874 to 1881. The Chambers Encyclopedia article on Jews is listed in the book as one of his publications. So we see that one problem raised in the booklet on Jewish press control is corroborated right here, as Jews used British names, Harris, and their rabbis even used British Christian-sounding titles, such as reverend. A rabbi cannot be a reverend. A Jew can't be a reverend. No, no white Christian should accept a Jew using the title reverend. They're the most irreverent devils in the world. This Chambers Encyclopedia article, written by Jews, substantiates all of the German complaints about Jews made by non-Jews, such as those found in Dr. Wiebe's Germany and the Jewish Problem, where he had described the Jewish control of the German press, which he had presented here in our last segment, we had presented here in our last segment on the protocols, and its discussion of Jewish influence in literature and publishing, as well as in finance, substantiates everything that we have seen here this evening. Chambers proved it for us out of the mouths of the Jews themselves. It may have been evil for a Nazi like Weber to say it, but here the Jews themselves, Isidore Harris and Emanuel Deutsch, have said concerning the Jews that another extraordinary and well-authenticated fact is that the European press, no less than European finance, is to a great extent under their control. In our next segment, we promise to actually return to the protocols themselves. Thank you for listening.
Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.